Hello and welcome to Opika's Innovation in Care Collaboration podcast series. My name is Ken McGill. I am a solution-focused care senior scientist here at Opika. I served as part of a statewide children's system of care for almost two decades. And it was during my tenure that I learned very quickly the importance of relationship and relationship building. I have as my amazing guests today, Janet Heckey and Laura Wallace, both of whom are thought leaders, children's mental health advocates, and systems innovators who have fulfilled important roles in the building of Idaho's Youth Empowerment Services, or YES program, system of care. They will share the importance of bringing to the table those with lived experience, not just in name, but as equal partners at the table in order to ensure that the structures that are being put in place and building systems of care are successful. And in addition to this, we'll actually be able to learn the importance of trust and how essential it is in building effective systems of care where all children, youth, emerging adults, and families have access to high-quality care in achieving successful outcomes. So thank you for tuning in. I cannot wait to talk to these amazing individuals who I call my friends. Thank you. So I am excited and uh, so honored to be welcoming Janet Heckey. So Janet, I've known for a while. She is part of the larger TCOM Collaborative. Got to meet her and actually uh, listen to her uh, share uh, as a keynote in the only regional TCOM conference to date, which was held in beautiful Boise, Idaho. And when Janet shares um, her story, her, her experience, uh, she inspires, uh, she shows in terms of innovative ways that we can solve the challenges that are before us, and she encourages and models that, um, that leadership and collaborative approach. And so if you do want to know everything there is to know about the TCOM tools, and I'm looking forward to uh, seeing Jana at this year's um, TCOM conference. And our next panelist, Laura Wallace. Laura and I've uh, known each other for a while now, and we actually had a great podcast not that long ago, and where Laura shared that she wears multiple hats. And um, it's so important when we have the different hats to take the expertise and apply it in different areas. So Laura is a professional engineer, a civil engineer. So she shared an amazing talk, how we can apply this uh, um, to our, our day-to-day uh, life. And I, I absolutely love that. Now, uh, Laura and I will be presenting at this year's TCOM conference. And uh, those who are not familiar with the TCOM conference, we'll be putting that in the chat and uh, hoping you can all attend in person. Uh, and if you aren't able to, we do have a um, a, a virtual uh, platform as well. So Janet and Laura, thank you. I've got to say this is the this is the time where I've gotten the most nervous. My hands are are sweaty. Um, I am I am. We nervous don't bite. <laughs> That's well. It, you know what? When you, when you have um, um, folks on that you really do admire, respect, and really do want to make sure that you. Uh, um, you provide the 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 platform. Um, so my my grandchildren told me to um, sit up straight and do less talking and more listening. Pop up. So I will <laughs> make sure I get that uh, that accomplished. So welcome the two of you. Maybe oh, you can you. start with just 
sharing whatever, you know, what you'd like to share. Well, I wanted to tell you that you mentioned our, our tagline for the parent network is together. Our voices are strong. Um, over the years, we've actually modified it a little bit to be together. Our voices are strong because individually our stories are powerful. Wow. And um, that was actually at a suggestion of a parent who said, I need to be enough without everyone standing behind me. And I think that there's a lot of truth to that. Um, a lot of parents aren't ready to have, you know, to be their own, you know, they like to have the voice of the collective and some are like, nope, my story's enough. And so we definitely hold space for both of those. Well, I, as I'm sitting here staring at my face on the, on the screen there, Ken, I just have to say, you know, hi, hi, hi space. Um, that's what, what this is what happens when you finally convince your family to do Christmas pictures and you beg someone to uh, take your picture too so everyone remembers you're in the family. Um, I'm really excited to be here today, Ken. Uh, I know I always enjoy speaking with Janet. In fact, the first big uh, presentation I did on this subject, I did with Janet. And between the two of us, um, I think we, I don't know about her, but I, I love public speaking, but it was still pretty... Uh, pretty nerve-wracking. It was a big room, a big crowd, and a lot of expectations. <laughs> and I think we had 90 minutes to tap dance in front of everyone. So it was, it was, a, it ended up being an excellent, an excellent experience, but I've always loved speaking with Janet since then. So yeah, she's the, she's the better half of the two of us. I, <laughs> she's the one who keeps me calm and sane, but I, um, I guess, I, I guess it's important for everyone to know that Janet and I both have been um, working on the Idaho's system of care overhaul for children's mental health for years now. I, I think she started a little bit before me, didn't you, Janet? I think. Yeah, just a little yeah, bit. Just a little bit. But 2016, 17 is when we started working on all of these things. And for those who don't know, Idaho settled a class action lawsuit. And so part of that process brought all sorts of stakeholders to the table. And Janet and I were part of that stakeholder group. Uh, it was a total accident that I was at the table, but there's no question that Janet needed to be there. <laughs> so, um, but we really did have um, an interesting experience walking into a system where there had been a lawsuit that prompted this. And so there were a lot of have-tos that the court had put in place, but then there were a lot of moments that were like, well, why don't you? And it kind of changed the dynamic. And um, one thing I will say to start it off is that we learned very quickly that there is a vast difference between having something created and handing it to parents to review and having the parents help you create it the first time. Mm -hmm. It is an entirely different system, an entirely different way to do things when it's designed for its intent as opposed to modified for its intent. Mm -hmm. I think that Janet and I, um, that was one, I think that's one of my biggest takeaways, Janet. I don't know. We have others we're talking about today, but that's, that's like my biggest, you know, and I have other biggest too. I, I, I don't limit myself to biggest, one biggest, um, I'm an equal opportunity, biggest takeaway, <laughs> but Janet, what are your thoughts? Well, I appreciate that, Laurie. Said a lot of kind things about me, and would I would echo those about you. So, um, but I again, we just we really appreciate being invited here today and be given the opportunity to share our perspective on children's mental health systems of care throughout throughout the country, really, and and overseas too. Um, one thing that I've been really grappling with lately, um, as our whole country has really, is this sense of diversity and inclusion, diversity, equity, and, and inclusion. 
And it occurred to me as Laura was speaking that the, the diversity that we bring to the table is not in, well, is not only in our color, our race, our um, religious perspective, any of any of that, but the diversity we bring to the to this specific table with the system of care is that we bring we bring parent voice to the table, right? So if you're looking at diversity in terms of stakeholders, you've got different agencies within a state, you have providers, you have companies that that run agencies and run healthcare systems and things like that. But without the voice of the parent and of the youth directly involved in creating those systems of care, everyone else is left to design a system of care without the people that it's there to impact and that it's there to serve. And you can't possibly know, I mean, I've heard this so many times throughout my life, having raising a child with a significant developmental disability and raising a child who is suicidal from age 10. Um, you can't know what you don't know. And you don't know what a family is experiencing when they're going through these kinds of things with their children. And we feel very alone and very isolated because we don't realize, sorry, I have a bug in here. We <laughs> don't realize that there are um, other families that are whose experience are similar to ours until we start to meet other parents who have similar experiences. And then we suddenly realize we're not alone, that this experience is while not universal, it is far more universal among those who have the same experience, the same types of experience that we have. So speaking that directly into state systems of care and getting, getting systems of care to understand that designing, designing a system of care without the input of those people who you're using is like designing a highway system when you've never driven a car or designing a kitchen for Gordon Ramsay if you've never been a professional cook and you don't talk to him about what he actually needs. So anyway, we appreciate very much the opportunity to speak with you all today. Well, it's a true honor. And, and just to, to point out that the system of care that I served for um, almost two decades, uh, New Jersey, the uh, system of care structure was written, or the concept paper was written by parents. And then uh, the governor at the time, uh, Governor Whitman, took the um, the concept paper, and people were there saying, "All right, what do we want to do? What do we want to change?" And she basically said, "This is a system we'll create based upon the information that we have. We're not going to edit. We're going to we're going to build this." And so there are many people that that uh, are still actively involved in the system that that wrote the the uh, had some input in the concept paper. And uh, so this for me is a real near and dear to my heart, and. Um, really brings us to the, the first real, um, you know, question that I have. And uh, Idaho is a beautiful state and it's uh, got wonderful people and, uh, and each state is doing something unique. And this for me is something that I see that, um, um, that when you have a parent and caregiver as seen as a professional who are compensated at the decision-making table, how does that really impact the implementation process of systems of care as it rolls out in real time? I think it's something that we can all learn from. Well, I want, I want to tell a story first, and it, it's a funny on Janet. It's one of my favorite stories to tell. But when we were first at the table, and I know Idaho is if not the only one of the few who compensate parents for their role in this type of system design. But before that had been initiated, we were sitting in a meeting and I was sharing a story 
um, of my family as an example of what was going on. Um, my kiddo had a very specific challenge that was speaking to what was on the table for discussion at the moment. And um, a very well-meaning state employee who I adore is someone I, I greatly admire and adore, but she said, you know, well, you know, but you're special. Your son is special. You're special. This is a special case. That's special. And, and Janet just kind of looked at me and said, Laura, don't take this the wrong way and turned back to the lady and said, Laura's not special. <laughs> and, and I just, at the time, everyone was like, what? You know, and I got a good giggle out of it. But her point was, is that my son was one of thousands who were experiencing the exact same thing in the state right then. And we know it because we're talking to other parents. We have friends, we have people we network with, we have people at the grocery store that, you know, we make eye contact with and we're like, we see you, we know what you're doing. And just because you can't count it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Or just because you haven't counted it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And um, interestingly enough, um, we were that same person, we were having a big conversation about how much parents hate the word discharge. We despise the word discharge. Mm -hmm. Discharge sounds like something you need medical attention for. It's not something we do to our children. And, and when you say discharge on the day that you're starting services, we need to start discharge planning. What we hear is you're already getting rid of us. Mm -hmm. My job as a parent is to fight for services because you've already got us with one foot out the door. And it's scary because discharge also is like you're throwing my kid out the car on while you're peeling around the corner on two tires and there's nothing left. If I lose this service, there's nothing. We don't like it. And I was just telling him, you know, transition that leaves us hope that we're going from one thing to another thing, not getting dumped on the sidewalk. And that same state employee called me back. I don't know, a long time later, a couple months later. And she said, you know what? I just had a family member who was in the hospital. It was very serious ICU. And we got notified that they were being discharged. And she said, I watched my family around me scramble to figure out how we're going to keep them alive. How are we going to protect this? How are we going to do the safety? How are we going to do this? And she's like, as I'm watching everyone around me run around, like losing their minds, she's like, they said the word discharge. That is an evil word. Why do we use this word? And so in Idaho, we have made a concerted effort, for example, to talk about transition planning not discharge planning. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, it sounds funny, but if that was that aha moment for that state employee. And so the question, of course, on the table is how is having us there as professional partners different? Um, and I know Janet has thoughts on this, but I would say for me, when you have parents at the table, you don't just get me the mom at the table. You get me the engineer, you get me the technical writer, you get me the public speaker, you get me... The person who has volunteered, you have, you know, you get all of me, all of my skills, all of my knowledge, all of my background. And, and I would say that when you get Janet, you get a lot more because <laughs> she's, she's a business owner. She does all of these things that she has and, and you get all of us at the table. And when you um, treat us like we are equal partners, not not a review board, not a, an advisory panel, not a, hey, we just want to know what you think about this sounding board. When you actually embed us in the design of what you're doing, what ends up happening is that you get to, um, you get to an agreement a lot faster because you're not going to have pushback from the families. 
And you also are more likely to find ways to integrate your different parts of your system because that's what we want. We want this to be easy for us to integrate and to, you know, this part of the system touches this part of the system, not like this, but like this, right? And, um, and so what I would say is that um, the moment that those that were working with us realized for me personally, I, I asked them, treat me like a coworker who's just so far down the hall that you don't see me at the water cooler, but you need to treat me the same way with the same courtesies, give me the same information, same deadlines, and let's, let's work together that way. And when that started happening, amazing things started happening in the areas I was working with at the state. Janet was participating in other parts of the system of care, but um, in my area, that would made all the difference. The minute they started looking at me as just another coworker, as opposed to this person that I, they had to get my approval. And it was a very different dynamic. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that, Laura. And I think for me that, there's a couple of things that happened when they decided to compensate parents. First of all, it enabled some parents to participate. Some of these meetings go all day or through lunch or you know, right up until when a parent has to leave and go pick their child up for school. And it enabled them to buy pizza on the way home and feed their family without freaking out about how to do what needed to be done to, to manage their family. So it gave them the grace of being able to participate and still be a mom without being stressed out when they got back from the meetings. And that's a very realistic thing for families when they're dealing with kids that are in and out of crises. So that was a huge thing. It, it helped us keep people at the table that would not have been able to participate otherwise because they just couldn't afford to have bought dinner for their family that night when they had a meeting that lasted all day. So that, that for me is one big thing. Um, another big thing that actually compensating parents did is that they do start to think of us a little bit more on an equal footing. And we don't have, I don't know how many of you have experienced this before, but when you start a new job or you enter a new, a new system of care, there's all these acronyms. There's all these phrases, all these, all these ways of dealing with the, the work at hand that are, it's shorthand, right? It's shorthand for the work that we do every day. And parents who are working into a system of care and youth who are working in a system of care, we're not familiar with the shorthand. And I've done this a lot in my other job doing, doing medical billing where you set up a process and it makes perfect sense to you because you, you know all the different stop signs, all the different roadways, all the different ways to get to where you need to be. And when you design it, you think, okay, it makes sense to go here and make a left to go there and, and fill out this form and then do that. And that all makes sense to you because you're familiar with all the different aspects of that one part of the system, right? You may not be familiar with it if you're talking about, you know, IDJC, which is uh, juvenile justice, right? So here I go with the acronyms right off the bat, right? If you're talking about juvenile justice, they have their own pathway to get to this center point. If you're, if you're with foster care, you have a different way to get to that center point. If you're with developmental disabilities, you have a different way. If you're with you know, serious emotional disturbances and complex mental health issues, you have a different pathway. They design it so that it fits through all of that and then they communicate that to families. But they communicate it using their shorthand 
And they don't realize that sometimes these things intersect. It's not one lane and one lane and one lane and one lane. It's all of these intermingling lanes. And so no one has that perspective of, I have a child who is a dual diagnosed. They have a developmental disability and a mental health issue. They're a foster care kid and they have a mental health issue. They've been involved in IDJC and they have a mental health issue and they have a developmental issue and they're a foster kid, right? Like no one who's in the system who's has all those different perspectives. So by paying parents, it enables them to sit at the table to bring real life experience around all expertise. And I think we also catch things that are, haven't been caught before. Like one of the tasks I had was to work on content for the website to communicate all of this to the public. So it was my job to make sure everything that was coming out of the work groups was family friendly. And I sat at the table quite a bit, just, you know, listening and, you know, and we call them on acronyms and for, For those who care, it's Idaho Department of Juvenile Corrections is IDJC, which is the state level of juvenile justice, but we also have a regional level and a county level and a city level because it wouldn't be easy enough to have just one. So we have to make sure we have all of them. But um, I realized quickly that we had terms that were being used and I'm like, wait a minute. And so I'm like, let's create a glossary of all of these terms, all of the acronyms. And guess what? We had some acronyms that had multiple meanings, same acronym. Um, but then I was like, let's define these words. And all of a sudden the agencies started arguing. They're like, that's not the definition of that word. Oh, yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. And I'm like, wait a minute. I suspect it. You guys don't use this phrase the same way. So you guys can sit in a room and legitimately agree that you're on the same page and do completely different things because you don't define your words the same. How is a parent supposed to get through a system for which one word has a meaning if you're at this counter at the state building, but if you take two steps over and talk to this person at a different counter, it has an entirely different meaning. How are we supposed to be successful? And I think that parents start asking those questions because we legitimately don't know. We had one parent who was chairing um, the governance team for this entire system of care. And her, the drum she beat was, I'm sorry, was that an acronym? I mean, she would call out anyone at any time during the middle of a meeting, didn't care if it was the deputy attorney general or if it was the director of health and welfare. She's like, I'm sorry, that's an acronym. Could you please explain that? People got really good at, you know, saying like Idaho Department of Juvenile Corrections, IDJC. And everyone go, mm-hmm, okay, okay, okay. And she's like, it's your warning. I mean, like she was, <laughs> she was really good, but it became culture for us. If you hear people use their acronyms, they immediately, anyone who's been with us as a group immediately says it if they didn't already before they use the acronym. And um, also explaining what they mean when they talk about, oh, this system, and then they'll pause and say, this system includes this, 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 and this, and then turn back because we trained each other to Mm -hmm. assume that no one knew. So I would say the other thing that compensating parents does is that it it forces them to know how much time we're spending. Mm -hmm. And... um, and obviously we're not, you know, working 80 hour weeks on salary. Um, that's not how they did it, but um, we kept t- track of our time so that they would know exactly how much parent was, you know, time was going into it. And, you know, as a part of the communications team, I'd go months with a couple hours here or there, and then we'd have a big overhaul of a, a part of the system. And I would live on my computer 
doing things. And I started this pre pre pandemic when we didn't have zoom and, and, you know, video conferencing. So I was on an awful lot of conference calls. I was that floating voice on the table when everyone else was in the room and we still made it work. But, um, I, I have to tell you, I really appreciated communicating things that parents had been part of designing far more than I appreciated things that had been handed to us and say, Hey, what do you think about this? And in fact, one time they handed me a document and said, Hey, well, you know, I'd like you to review it. And my response back to them was, I can't, it doesn't, it doesn't reflect parent voice and I can't fix it. I'm going to start over. I'll give you something on Monday. And I did. I just rewrote the whole thing, got the parents. We spent the whole weekend with phone calls between us. We got what we needed and handed it back. And it was interesting because I expected it to be a bloodbath of a review. <laughs> and they changed two sentences on a 17 page document, everything else they were good with because we'd listened to them. We knew what they wanted and we knew what our needs were. And we gave it back to them meeting all of those criteria. I think, I think they were surprised. I think they were very surprised actually that the parents could do that as quickly as we did. But anyway, I like the fact that you just shared all that because it really, for me, reinforces that systems of care have connected with them values and principles that we all need to follow. So this aligns perfectly. And it's going to sound like a plug. It's not meant to be a plug at all. But in terms of it really aligning very well with the TCOM or the Transformational Collaborative Outcomes uh, uh, Management, with the community metric tools that are used, it's about sharing this through language that people understand. And it's bringing to the table many different systems. And for me, this was a great reinforcement that I am definitely in the right spot and uh, been part of an amazing collaborative. But I will share a quick story that I had because, again, we all learn, and I'm a little over 20-something years of age. Um, when I was a clinical director for a care management organization, our goal when we were starting up to ramp up to our, I think it was 400 or 500 um, families that we had, I called uh, a grandmother to let her know that her grandson was open. But that's not exactly what I said. I said, hi, I'm Ken. I'm calling from the CMO. Click. And so that's kind of strange. This person just hung up on me, called again. Hi, I'm Ken McGill, calling from the CMO. Click. The third time around, I said, you know, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm Ken McGill. Um, I, I'm, please don't hang up on me. I'm, I'm calling on behalf of your grandson. And then I explained that I'm Ken McGill working for the care manager organization, which is different than a CMO. She thought I was selling insurance and she was just tired of the harassment that she was receiving on the on the call. Many of my my colleagues who uh, used to nickname me the Mr. Wraparound or whatever, but um, said, oh, you used the acronym. It was a real experience that I share because it's so important that um, if we do make a mistake, accept it, learn from it, apologize and you know, and, and you can teach an old dog a new trick in my case, <laughs> in my example. So, but I think that's the big takeaway. So if there are people who are looking at incorporating systems of care on a local level or at a statewide level, um, this is some really amazing stuff. Thank you very much. Well, one other thing I'd like to point out is that parents, and it depends on how every organization did it, but I didn't work for anyone specifically. We were kind of outside of the chain of command for um, the, the role we played, which meant if I had a question, I could call anyone. I could have a conversation with anyone. I didn't have a, you know, a rank. I had to go up to go back down another, you know, another silo. Um, Janet will probably laugh at all of the times um, I have called her and said, well, so I just called 
enter some director level here. And I had a chat because I think we have a problem and I wanted some answers. And it got to the point, I'm sure people are like, so Laura, who have you called today? Because I would just start making phone calls to figure out what I needed to know. And, um, and to me, that was part of relationship building. It was part of, hey, we're all at the same table. I don't know why you did this. I'd like to know. Maybe there was a, a problem you were trying to solve I didn't understand, or there was something going on that is bigger or more. And um, and I started, I, I mean, I actually, one time I, I called and said, hey, I'm going to be in the Capitol. Everyone's there. I'm going out to dinner. I'd like to put faces to all the people I've been on the phone with. I'm going to be going to dinner at this time. Who can come? And you know what? I started putting faces to the voices I'd been hearing. And some of them at the time were not my favorite people. I mean, they were people that annoyed me, <laughs> but we started becoming friends and some of them are going to be lifelong friends. Uh, but I felt that relationships were vital to, because if I continued to look at them as representatives of a system that wasn't going to work for me or my family, then there was going to be conflict. If I saw them as humans, who had hopes and dreams and fears and had good reasons for the decisions they had made, I was going to have a little more grace and a lot more patience, and we were going to have an open dialogue. And um, I know the next question we have coming up is actually about relationships, so spoilers. But um, I will tell you that this one particular um, person, she'll, she'll hate me for saying this, but when I first interacted with her, I called her boss and I said, I do not know who this woman is, but... I think if you ask, if I looked at her business card, it would say killer of dreams is her job title. And the, her boss just like started howling with laughter. She's like, I can assure you that is not the title on her business card. But as I got to know her and we sat through some hard conversations together, she's now one of my dearest friends. And, um, and we took the time to go through the things we didn't see eye to eye on and figure out why. And those relationships, I, I would say that um, she ended up becoming probably the biggest proponent of system change in some areas that had not moved in a really long time because at the very first, for the very first time she got it like, oh my goodness, this is what you've been trying to tell me. And I trust you. I trust that you are telling me the truth. And I found out from her years later that every time a new employee started, her direction to them was seek out the parents on this group, get to know them, anything they tell you, take seriously and make sure you find a way to resolve it. If you don't know how, pull us in and loop it in, but you will go farther in this job if you have a good relationship with the parents than you will any other way. I didn't know she was doing that at the time. Um, but for me, it was really important that I have those relationships. Janet can attest to the fact that not everyone thought that me developing relationships with uh, the state personnel was going to get us anywhere. In fact, there was more than one conversation about the fact that I was wasting my time. I don't agree. Laura, I think it's, you know, it's interesting hearing again your stories about, about your connections and things because it, it was true <clears throat> and it was difficult. Um, there are a few things about building relationships that are to me essential, just undeniably change how systems of care work when you're building relationships with each system partner. One of them is that 
I talked about diversity earlier, and this is a big, I think a big talking point within diversity because it is so important. When you know someone and you understand them and their experience, you can't dismiss them. And that's true regardless of what circumstance you're coming from. So building those relationships where people understand what your life is like and what your experience is like and understand you as a human can only better how they look at the system um, and vice versa too. Us understanding, learning the system of care and the constraints they have on them, right? There's so many times I have had conversations with system partners who have, you know, we've expressed, we really want this to be this way. For example, when Idaho decided to use the 1915I Medicaid waiver program. Amendment. It's a Medicaid amendment. Sorry. (laughs) Laura will correct me on that. She will hold me accountable, which I appreciate. (laughs) When they decided to use this amendment, they had to attach a service that is not part of the state system of care. It's not a Medicaid covered service. So they attached respite to it, which is great. You can get Medicaid dollars to pay for respite in Idaho. This sounds like a fantastic thing. Parents were very excited about this. This is a great thing. One of the caveats to that 1915I from the government is in order to qualify, you have to go through an independent assessor. So now parents had to tell their whole story again to an independent assessor in order to qualify for respite. And we we went back and forth for a long time with the state about why, why didn't parents want to tell their story? So from a parent perspective, I look at it and say, okay, so imagine you are with your child, or if you don't have a children, have children, imagine you're the child and your parent then has to tell the worst of the worst of the worst things that you have ever done in your life. Every time they need to buy anything, they need to go to the grocery store and buy groceries in order to check out. They have to tell in front of you the worst of the worst of the worst things you've ever done. To get gasoline, they have to tell the gas attendant the worst things that you've ever done. That changes the dynamic that the parent has with their child because now my child's only hearing me tell the terrible things they've ever done and they begin to think that's all I think they are. So that was our perspective on it. And their perspective from a system point of view was, we want to be able to provide respite to you. The only way that we can do that, or the best way we know to do that, is to use Medicaid dollars. And that has the requirement of going to an independent assessor. So now we're on the same page, and now we can say, all right, so that being the case, how do we do this that lessens the impact on families, that lessens the need that families have to tell their story over and over and over and over? And now in Idaho, um, a parent during that independent assessment can indicate to the assessor that there's part of the conversation they'd like to have without their kid there so that they don't have to do that in front of their kid. And I remember telling someone years ago at a school meeting that um, every time I had to rehash my son's story from beginning to end, that a little piece of my soul died. See, And And because my job as a parent is to celebrate all the amazing things about him. But if I want him to get services, you don't care what he can do well. You care what he, he needs help with. You don't give him services for the things he's already stellar at. And um, so, yeah, that was a conversation that we had. 
And, and that was very important to us that our kiddos not be required to sit in this independent assessment that could sometimes take three or four hours listening to their parent talk about all the ways they fail at life. Um, it's not good for us. It's not good for them. And honestly, it doesn't help their treatment in any way, but it sure makes home life a lot harder. So um, I did see someone ask a question um, in the chat, and I want to just make sure I address this. Um, they asked when, when work began on all of this. And so um, the mental health system of care, um, the, it's called Youth Empowerment Services, that's uh, referred to as YES in Idaho. It, uh, the settlement agreement was mediated at the end of 2015. And I would say, Janet, in 2016, by mid-2016, we had parents who were starting to filter in. And by the beginning of 2017, there were five of us firmly embedded in pretty much every work group. We touched every work group and every, um, every aspect of system design. With, um, but they didn't really start work until 2016. So it was within a couple months of, of when the real work started on the process. Um, and is it consistent? Yes, it is exceptionally consistent. Could there always be more? Yes, yes, there can always be more. But I don't think, um, with very few exceptions, I don't think the state has considered even attempting a work group um, without a parent representative since then. I, I think that they, they're not willing to look us in the eyeballs if they tried, because <laughs> we've just been there. There's a couple exceptions um, for legal reasons. Obviously, they have some groups that are internal, you know, internal to themselves. But for the most part, there is if not a person completely on the work group. And, and by the way, it's more than the five of us now. Um, that original five over the years has changed and unmodified. And now there are a, a good body of parents that commute, that are participating in some way. So um, it is not specifically related to the foster system, though um, the settlement agreement does include the Department of Health and Welfare, and that is, um, and Child Protection, Child Welfare is a part of that. So their leadership does sit at the table, and we do have relationships with them, and they are part of the overall conversations and work being done. So we also ask about measuring impacts. Janet, hmm. are we measuring impacts, or are we just acknowledging that they've happened? I don't know how much measurement of parent impact has, has been done. So we're working on um, the new quality assurance plan does have measurements in it that's being developed now. And I, I did want to add, um, it actually began before that because there was a parent who was involved in the settlement agreement oh, sure. in designing that settlement agreement, which happened over multiple years prior to that. So yeah, I forgot about that. But on the work groups, that, that was after the settlement agreement. But you're right. We had a parent who was um, on, the, on the mediation team for the settlement agreement. And was instrumental in bringing parents to the table. Without her, it wouldn't have happened. So yeah, yeah, it was. It, without her, none of us would be here. For those people who don't think their voices matter, um, the fact that she stood in that spot and would not move until parents were included as part of the settlement agreement as being at the table, we would not be here. Well, you are both kindred spirits because I actually put on here the, uh, the first part of this uh, slide is strengthening collaborations, a roadmap for successful implementation strategies. Um, a couple of years ago, I probably wouldn't be able to spell blog, but now I'm able to blog and impresses some of the uh, uh, the grandkids. But um, I actually shared where I learned um, from a, an amazing uh, thought leader like yourselves in uh, the rollout of a statewide system of care where she provided, her name was Lucy Keating, and uh, Lucy 
sadly had passed away um, January of this past year. Um, but she shared and all the all the important things and topics that you're talking about. Families shouldn't have to share their story more than once. Um, we need to build relationships. We need also all this stuff. So when I share some of the writings, um, I give full credit where credit's due. And joining um, the group here at Opeka, our goal is to prevent um, families to have to um, share their stories over and again. They have that story with them and that because of systems of care should partner and collaborate, that story, that information should be shared and follow them throughout the care um, they receive in real time. So um, you all are, again, amazing because you point out that you you've, if once you bring parents, caregivers, their expertise to the table and their willingness to share and partner is incredible, even though they have the the the, uh, the challenges that have set forth, they want to make it better for other families. And, and that just still shows that you know, when you think of a servant leader and that term gets flopped around a lot, um, you embody the uh, that term, both of you, so. Well, and I think when you bring parents to the table, you need to recognize a couple of things that are important. First of all, parents aren't going to give inordinate amounts of their time because they're thrilled with the system that exists, mm -hmm. which means they are probably ticked, something has happened, they're not happy about it, and they're gonna come in with all of those emotions. So knowing up front that you have to sit with them where they are, wherever that is, even if that is yelling at you because something that happened that maybe you didn't do, maybe you did. Mm -hmm. But understanding that they have to get through the mad before they can get to the productive and it's part of our process. But it's also that um, who we are has changed from our experience, who we wanted to be, who are, we wanted our families to be. And most of us recognize that the system that we are trying to change will never help our family. So for those in the back, hear that again. The work we're doing is probably not gonna help our family. We're gonna age out of the system, especially for kids systems. We're gonna age out before these changes have not only been rolled in, but they are actually up and running around the state and they're working the way we hope them to work. And so it's important to know that, um, that we aren't likely to get the benefit of the work we are doing, but we're still here and we're still doing it. Uh, my my son got a very small taste of it. Some of the processes got faster before he aged out. Um, but another thing to not forget is there's a big difference between asking them when they design it and helping them train it. Janet and I have both been given the opportunity to actually train the people who are implementing the systems we help design. And I remember sitting in a presentation where someone was discussing discharge planning. And I'm sitting there with my jaw just kind of locked and my teeth grinding. I'm like, I hate this word. And then I said, it's transition planning. And someone else piped up and said, yeah, well, I'm never going to use that because I don't like it. And they started kind of poo-pooing it. And, um, and I said, look, I was in the room when that decision was made. I know why. Um, I know why it's transition planning and here's why. Here's what you're telling families when you say discharge. And this is why it's important that we not use this word. And this is why, you know, and I kind of went through it and I said, so look, you're all providers. You have the opportunity to make a difference. Please use transition. It means so much to us to know that you're staying with us. We're just transitioning between one thing and another as opposed to being dumped. And afterwards, the presenter came up to me and she's like, you know, there's this document 
that I think you should read that really explains the system of care really well. And I think you would find it enlightening. And I think it might answer a lot of your questions about what I was presenting today. And I said, really, what document? And she identified the document that all of the parents had written together um, at the beginning of the project. And so she's like, you should read this. And she's like, have you seen it? I'm like, yep. <laughs> yes, I have. She's like, oh, really? And she's like, how did you, how, how did you run across it? We wrote it. <laughs> and so it was, but it was so important that I be part of the training because I had a whole room full of people who were like, well, we're going to do what we've always done. Mm -hmm. Nope. No, you're not. And here's why. Now, do I know if they still use the words discharge planning? I don't know. If they do, I'll buy, boil a pot of noodles and smack them with it. But I did my best. Janet has traveled across the state helping to train, um, partnered with, um, with agency staff. And I didn't, I didn't get to be quite that fancy, but, um, but Janet did an amazing job. And if you listen to the state staff she was with, they'll tell you she was their favorite part of the presentation. <laughs> so, um, but having parents speak to the whys behind the changes was incredibly powerful for buy-in. But it's also incredibly powerful when we're communicating. And I know this next slide is for me. This is my baby. Um, the top line there, do what you say and say what you do. When I was working with communications, um, I was adamant that we not tell parents anything that they couldn't duplicate. Like go here to this website and apply and then you'll have, you know, you'll have coverage. Okay, does that work? Can I actually go here, do that thing and will I get coverage? What, I got denied? Why did I get denied? You said if I went here, I'd get coverage. Ah, maybe we're missing some steps or maybe there's more to communicate. But when parents tell other parents, this is good, we've worked hard, there are good things happening, be patient, have some grace, we're working the kinks out, stay with us, that lands an awful lot differently than someone you know, from the state saying, just this way it is. Yeah, it doesn't work in pair when you say just because. I want you to do this because. <laughs> My teenager will tell you that is not an answer that we, that rates. <laughs> but Janet added the second line. And I think yeah. it's important to discuss that nuance. For me, I know what, what Laura said is very important, that they have to do what they say they're going to do. Um, this saying for me is just one that I try and use all day, every day in all my communications is say what you mean, mean what you say, don't say it mean. This is falls under the, I think it was Brene Brown who has the thing, clear is kind, right? Even if it's something that you don't look forward to communicating or that the other person isn't gonna wanna hear, being clear about what it is, is kind. And there are ways to say it that aren't in your face and mean about it. And I think that's so true from the state perspective because Anyone I think who's worked in a state, and I'm making a huge assumption here, and my assumption is that other states frequently have the same type of situation that Idaho has, um, because my experience is mostly with Idaho. But we had uh, people within the state system of care who would say, we would go into a meeting at, at 9 a.m. and discuss X proposal and come up with solution Y. And then at 10 o'clock, we would go into a different meeting with a few different people and decision Y would then get changed to decision A. And then at 11 o'clock, there was another meeting that I wasn't involved in and decision A got changed to decision X. And I wasn't told about it. 
And so when I went and communicated back to the parents, the decision was A, then the parents thought decision was A. And then we were all surprised when down the road, the decision came back to be X. And that's part of what I mean when I say, say what you mean, mean what you say and don't say it mean. It is not kind to leave people out of the decision-making process of the decision of the decision when they've been a part of the decision-making process. So if you've included families in, in the decision-making process about any point in the system of care, any change you're making, it's critical that you circle back with them and let them know what changes were made and why, if that is what you had agreed to do, or if that isn't what you had talked about doing the last time. Because without that information, you lose buy-in from the very people that you're seeking their experience to support. And without that, it, it makes it exceptionally challenging to keep trust within the system. And Laura will be the first person to tell you that without trust, she's not participating. And that's true for a lot of families. Well, and I mean, the title of this uh, of this session today is Systems of Trust. Um, Janet, probably if she got paid by the number of times I said this, would be retiring now. But I have said so often, you think you're building a system of care. You are not. You are building a system of trust. If we can't trust you, nothing you do matters. Nothing here, nothing later. We will not use it. We will not access it. And we will not contribute. Not just the people sitting at the table for design, but the families you're trying to serve. We will not be part of something we can't trust the outcome for. And for those of us who have kids whose mental health is serious enough that we're looking at potential death, these are legitimately life and death, death decisions we are trying to make. If I can't trust you, you are not coming near my family. And so when I say do what you say and say what you do, to me, it is vital that any communication that comes out about whatever you're doing has to be true not just what we want it to be. Like, can I take this information and use it? And will it come out the way you said it's going to? Because if it doesn't, you've lied to me. And now I don't trust you. And now nothing you're doing is going to matter anymore at all. And when a family is in crisis, you don't have five times to do over until you get it right. You have once. If I'm in crisis, that means someone's about to die in my home. And... I don't care that you goofed up. You can goof up tomorrow on your own time. Right now, I'm going to keep my family safe. And you are no longer going to be someone I am going to trust. Now, when I'm out of crisis, is it possible for you to earn my trust back? Maybe. But I have, I have only slightly jokingly said, I am tired of going to an agency who tells me, oh, wait, we're not the right one. You need to go over there. You need to make an appointment. I know it took you five months to get this appointment, but I'm going to give you a phone number. Oh, wait, was that disconnected? Well, you'll have to go look it up. I'm sure there's a new number. Go find that number, call them, get on their wait list, maybe another two or three months. Then they're going to do another intake because it's different than my intake. And then they're going to give you a list of resources that may or may not be available. They're going to give you a sheet that they haven't reviewed for five or six years. Half the numbers are disconnected. The contact people have moved on to new jobs. Heck, they're not, might not even be in a company anymore. They may not take your, the, the age of, or gender of your child. They may not take your insurance. They may be over full or maybe understaffed. They may only do summer programs or maybe they only do, you know, 
you know, school-based programs. Maybe your kid's too old. Maybe they're too young. Maybe you have too much income. Maybe you don't have enough. I'm not going to tell you any of that, but you're going to have to make calls. And when you come back to me and say, none of it worked, I'm going to say, well, did you call the list? And when you say yes, I'm going to say, well, try again. And I'm going to send you back out the door. I got this much help. My family's still falling apart. And now you're public enemy number one to me because you were supposed to help me. So I had, while I was working on communications, I was adamant. Our phone numbers actually went someplace that worked. I, as part of my review process, I called them all. You know how much fun they had when I would just randomly call? Yep, you work, thanks. <laughs> um, but checking emails or web addresses, making sure that the office of such and such is actually called the office of such and such. Because that might be what you call it internally, but can I look it up and find that word, you know, that name? That's important. And if you say, if I call this number, I'm going to get help. I better get help when I call that number, not the number after the number after the number that they've given me. And so um, I know more than one state agency person was ready to put my face on the dartboard and use it um, for stress relief. But those small things, when your family is in crisis, are everything. And Laura's so, really sorry, Laura. Yeah, that was it. I was just going to say what you're really talking about here is patient-centered care, right? All of these things. When we think about, oh, we offer patient-centered care. Have you ever looked at what it's like to be to be a patient seeking care at your center? And what does that look like when you, from when you walk through the door to when you pick up the phone and call it to every, every touch point down the line, if you want to really start to take an internal look at what patient-centered care looks like, start looking at what it looks like from your agency perspective if you were a parent walking through that front door the first time. Right. Keeping that as a gauge that, you know, if I brought my family here, what type of care would I receive? You'd want the best. Therefore, that, that ability to empathize versus sympathize with someone. And that's another Brene Brown, but in terms of there is a big difference. And, um, and what well, you've heard. Yeah. Well, we, we always, I, I call it when the wheels fall off, when you're trying to drive down the road of care and the wheels fall off, you know, one wheel falls off and the whole car tips over. You can't keep driving. It's not like, well, the other three are working great. Nope. <laughs> but when all the wheels fall off, I mean, little simple things like, you know, apply for Medicaid here. Okay. So I go and apply and I get a denial. Well, you said I qualified. Well, then I get mail, you know, about 10 days later, I get a letter in the mail and it says Medicaid on it. Am I going to read it after I got a big flashing sign that says you're denied on the website? Nope. I assume you just sent me a letter to tell me I'm really denied. So I throw it out. Well, one of the things at the beginning of our system of care implementation was um, that families were applying for Medicaid and never using services and the state couldn't figure out why. So I said, walk me through how you apply. And they did. And I was like, well, you denied them right here. I'm like, well, we sent them a letter that said we hand reviewed it and they were accepted. And I said, no one read your letter because they assumed you were just telling them that they were denied again. And they're like, well, why would they open the mail? I said, because you already told them it didn't matter. And so they added like two sentences. Each decision will be hand reviewed. Please check your mail to see if, you know, if in, you know, if you have any of these reasons that will have been approved, check your mail. All of a sudden, the utilization rates went back up because people started checking their mail. It was as simple as adding the sentence, this denial is just the, the computer doing its basic math. There are other exceptions we'll have to hand review. 
And then poof. And But if you're a parent, you just got denied after being told that this was your first step to getting the care. Now I don't trust the whole system and I'm backing away. You lied to me. So do what you say and say what you do. Um, not that I'm going to have anything tattooed on myself, but if I was going to be, that would be it. My mother would have said needle pointed on a pillow, but that sounds like more time and energy than I've got. <laughs> well, again, I think this year, saving the best for last, um, what really is the takeaways, I, I know the um, all the participants, I know I have a bunch of takeaways um, that always learn something. I always learn something incredible. And when we think about human services, um, the essence of human services about relationships in general, you have to build trust. And also that shift, whose responsibility in working in the system of care, whose responsibility is it to build the trust? It's those in the system of care to begin that process. And again, if someone who's angry, upset, or frustrated because they've not been um, provided the supports in the past, we in the system of care needs to say, acknowledge that is something that has happened. I am so sorry it's happened because we represent that. And I think that's the the big shift when we think of the values and principles attached to systems of care. And that's why what I've uh, done, and I've, I've heard uh, Janet mention uh, before is systems that care and it's that shift that that shift and, and like Laura you said it's the things that that seem really uh simple and I actually just I completely removed that that word from my vocabulary um and also other states call it term, uh, terminating so I just want to put that in there so oh. transitioning is a wonderful uh, uh <laughs> Did you see me do this? I know. I just want to let you know. So other states, we have a lot of work to do. And uh, um, and I wanted to put your contact information. I hope people will will, will say, hey, I have more information. That's things I wanted to ask. Um, they can certainly do that. And uh, but I, I just know that there's there's just so much that we, we need to do and and moving it forward. And the last part of it. Uh, when I learn from this amazing person, like I'm learning from you all, is that the, uh, the first starting point is relationships. The last part of it was uh, revision, revision, revision in regards to uh, implementation. It continues on. It doesn't end. And um, so I'm looking forward to learning much more about um, the exciting parts uh, that, that are taking place in Idaho. I can't believe the hour is up already. And I'm like, how do I turn time back? How do I do that or stop it? Um, so I want to, again, thank uh, you, Janet, and thank you, Laura, for taking time out of your uh, extremely busy schedules. Uh, since we've gone more virtual, we've been working harder than ever, and you all are doing some heavy lifting um, so that families don't have to do uh, or go through some of the, the challenges. So on behalf of the children, families, the emerging adults that, you, you know, that not just in Idaho, but throughout the planet um, say thank you. Thanks for having Thanks. us. Thank you, oh, Kim. Totally appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Innovation and Care Collaboration Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple, or Google, and join us each week as we invite in thought leaders in health and human services to discuss the latest trends in healthcare and technology.